Welcome to the Think Again podcast. I'm Denise St. Ivany. My guest today is Eric Becker, Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager at Macquarie Asset Management. Eric came over here to Macquarie in 2021 as part of our acquisition of Waddell & Reed. As a manager of the Delaware Ivy Core Equity Fund, Eric brings 23 years of asset management experience and is a chartered financial analyst. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Denise. Well, this is certainly an interesting time for markets. It's always great to have the perspective of a professional manager who oversees broad portfolios. So we thought maybe we could uh, just jump right in and really start with the elephant in the room, which is the geopolitical developments between Russia and Ukraine. What does this mean for the markets from your perspective? Yeah, there certainly is a lot going on today. Um, As it relates to the effect on overall markets, I think there's some things that are obvious, one of which is that we're experiencing a significant spike in commodity prices. Oil is in the $115 range. Not too long ago, it was uh, essentially free uh, in the the height of the pandemic. Natural gas has also spiked. Um, This takes quite a bit of buying power away from European consumers and to a much lesser extent, the US. And the result is overall, I think you're going to see slower economic growth, maybe up to a point or so in in Europe due to the effect of commodity prices alone and much less of an impact in the US given uh, we are less uh, exposed to the energy uh, shock that that we're seeing. Um, It also means that we're gonna see more supply chain challenges You've seen uh, the European auto manufacturers like BMW and Volkswagen idle production lines for a few weeks as supplies are not coming in on time from Eastern Europe and particularly Ukraine. Uh, I mentioned slowing growth. Uh, This was essentially already baked in against really tough growth comparisons in 2021. Uh, We're seeing uh, earnings growth this year, uh, most likely in the in the five to ten percent range in 2022, from almost 50 percent growth in 2021, and we have a valuation of the stock market that's slightly above long-term trend. Um, the, the growth slowdown that we're seeing in corporate earnings to the five to ten percent range is important because, in the long run, stock markets reflect the broader path of earnings, and earnings are slowing down quite a bit. Um, we also have sticky inflation. Wages are going up because there is a scarcity of labor uh, for the time being. Energy prices are up and supply chains are still having a, uh, to catch up from very, with really strong demand. Uh, not since the 1980s have we had to worry about the effects of inflation, but they're real. It makes consumers less confident, it erodes purchasing power for discretionary items. And uh, that's particularly uh, tough on the lower income cohorts of our economy. So with so much uncertainty, it's important to control risk. Nobody knows the exact outcome of all of this. Um, From a geopolitical standpoint, will China be more emboldened or will China realize that the economic effects of adventurism, say in Taiwan, for example, carries with it very severe penalties in the form of sanctions, removal from the global financial system and so on. Um, It's not only that investors are uncertain and how this will all play out, but consumers are very uncertain as well. Consumer confidence is at the lowest level since the financial crisis, despite a strong jobs market and sharply improving wages, which you would think would be positive for sentiment. So a lot going on. Uh, I think 
the net takeaway is slower growth than um, one would have expected prior to the uh, geopolitical issues that we're experiencing. And I think it's a, a, a climate where investors have to really focus on the risk they're taking within their portfolios. Yeah. Gosh, there's so much there in those comments. Um, you know, when I hear that slow growth, we know inflation has um, been, you know, apparent for a good while here. Uh, and, and so with the uncertainty, a lot of people might want to keep their money in cash, but that would make no sense in an inflationary environment. Uh, you almost need to have assets to keep up with inflation, but then you've got the concerns. So just lots of challenges at every turn. Um, so thanks for uh, raising all those issues. And uh, again, you know, but where, where are the answers? You know, so we have to look at, again, what do we do with our investing? You know, now we've got to, if you're going to invest in the equity markets, you're thinking, is it growth? Do I overweight growth or do I overweight value? There's been, you know, this tug of war going on between growth and value. Um, does this get more convoluted, you know, with uh, the Russia-Ukraine conflict? You know, so if you would talk a little bit about your perspective between growth and value investing. Yeah, and that's a, a really important topic. Um, value and growth investments have followed highly divergent paths over the last 10 to 12 years, really since the financial crisis. Uh, following that financial crisis in 08 and 09, we generally had a pretty slow economic recovery in the US and globally. Uh, Europe, as you remember, was troubled by a financial system that, that needed to recapitalize. We had negative interest rates in many parts of the world. We had the European debt crisis in 2011. And then we had a trade war with China late in the decade. And all of this led to a very slow recovery in jobs and wages relative to previous recessions. In fact, it took until 2018 for the U.S. to finally see wage growth break out of the 3% range on the upside. So this all led to really low inflation, low interest rates, and as a result of that, growth investments sharply exceeded value in terms of stock market returns, as investors were really willing to pay uh, pay up for the growth, which was relatively scarce, scarce at the time. Of course, then we had the pandemic. And once again, we saw a sharp contraction in economies, value again underperformed, and people paid more for investments that had secular revenue growth, uh, which was really independent of economic growth, and ones that benefited from changes in consumer and corporate behavior and so on. And this led to extreme valuations in the growth cohort of the market, uh, particularly in areas where you had more speculative growth, unprofitable growth companies. Um, and the valuations reached levels that we really hadn't seen since the dot-com bubble of 2000. And then in the middle of last year, the, uh, this all turned, uh, the tables turned and investors began to consider a sharp economic rebound as we learned to live with COVID. And of course, we had very significant government stimulus. So as a core manager, by definition, I play in both sandboxes, growth and value, and incrementally can shift allocations depending on opportunities that we see in the market. I think there's an inherent advantage in having a large investment universe where we can analyze the opportunity set, which is a function of future growth and uh, importantly, valuation. And I just say, moreover, you know, one of the most powerful ways to generate strong returns for our shareholders is to own value stocks over time that are recognized 
eventually as growth companies. Uh, people forget that Apple at one point was, was a value stock. It was a $2 stock. Steve Jobs was essentially fired and then returned to the company and invented the iPod and then the smartphone. And that set up a huge acceleration in growth and a revaluation of that company. And same thing with Microsoft. They were sued by governments for monopoly status. They weren't growing rapidly at the end of Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer's tenure with the company. Uh, they traded at a mid-teens PE multiple, and then they tightened the strategy, changed the revenue model tied to software, and, and developed a rapidly uh, growing uh, cloud computing business. Growth accelerated, and the company was revalued by investors. So the essence of what I really tried to do, and I think where a lot of investors should look, is to find a handful of companies that can, can transition from value to growth over time with uh, specific catalysts, which are a function of the, the management acumen, uh, strong in market growth and growing competitive advantage within their industries. Um, so to me, it's, it's tough to uh, make a call at any given point in time. Uh, do, you wanna, do you wanna go value? Do you wanna go growth? I think it's important to uh, play in each of the areas, um, make uh, a certain tilt based upon where the opportunities are, what the valuation inherent is, in the in the groups of stocks that you're looking at and go from there. Those are some incredible stories that you mentioned. And I can see how ideally, you know, you get some value stocks in a portfolio and that, you know, can, like you say, transition to growth stocks. That's the ideal scenario. Um, you know, with so many of these positions at inflated valuations, you know, how important is active, you know, in this in this environment, in this scenario? Uh, so would you touch on active versus passive management? Yeah, Denise, that's a great question. And we get asked all the time, what's the role of, of active management in a portfolio versus passive management? I think it's important to consider that by definition, passive management has no inherent risk control. When markets are going higher and everything is, is working, we tend to minimize the importance of risk control. And the narrative becomes more about how much you own in the high-flying stocks. In the housing and financial crisis of 2005 to 2008, active managers who saw the risks in the system and controlled their risk by underweighting housing stocks, consumer stocks, financial companies, they did really well, relatively speaking. Uh, the index held all of these investments and by definition at a market weight all the way through the crisis. The same was true in 2000, by the way, with uh, tech stocks. The index was highly exposed to what was really at the time a, a significant bubble within the market. You fast forward to the most recent example of the pandemic, it affected companies very differently, whether you're an economic cyclical, an energy company, materials company, airlines or hotels, or whether you were a structural growth software company. The index by definition held all of the bad areas and astute active managers again, had a significant opportunity to control risk relative to the index. And even more recently, we've seen a dramatic revaluation of speculative growth companies. A lot of these names are highly recognizable to most people, Zoom and Peloton and Roku, where, where again, the index was uh, highly exposed. But astute managers had an opportunity to identify the valuation risk that was inherent in this pocket of the market and control for that. So in short, I really think that the value of active management increases in times of stress and where there is a highly divergent performance among stocks and groups of stocks. It allows portfolio managers an opportunity to control for 
the risk and secondarily provides the ability to express views on individual companies or pockets of the market where indiscriminate selling creates large opportunities in the future. So that's the way I think of it. I, I really do believe that, um, that the value of active management uh, really increases in times of, of market stress. Well, we're clearly in those times. So I do think that uh, active should be the uh, way most people lean these days. Um, again, if you want to have, like you mentioned, that risk overlay in a portfolio. Uh, another buzzword, uh, Eric, is certainly ESG, especially for the younger generation. What does ESG mean to you? And then specifically related to environment, to energy, do you think Russia-Ukraine conflict will accelerate adoption of clean energy? Yeah, that's a great question. Again, um, a lot going on here. And, and I want to make clear that uh, my fund at the, at the moment doesn't have, let me start over. I don't want to say at the moment. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, here we go. Uh, Denise, uh, thanks for the question. That was another good one on ESG. Um, I want to start out by saying we don't have a, a formal mandate within the context of the portfolio uh, in terms of ESG. Um, but ESG is something that we've thought about for a long time because to me, it's really all about sustainability. Does a company operate in a sustainable growth end market? And, and is that company operating in a way that ensures that they will continue to be a dominant franchise well into the future? Um, I think the environmental aspect of ESG seems to get the most attention and deservedly so because individuals and their governments are simply more concerned about it today than they were say five or 10 years ago. And we also have several technologies available to improve environmental footprints, whether it's investments tied to efficiency or methods to capture carbon or even greater use of recyclable materials and so on. But it goes a lot deeper than that uh, really into determining whether companies are, are building a sustainable culture. And I always like to bring up the example of Costco Wholesale and their legendary founder, Jim Sinegal. Uh, many years ago, um, we toured a brand new Costco store here in Kansas City. And he explained to me that if we take care of our customers and our employees, in the end, we'll end up taking care of our shareholders. Costco has always had the best pay and benefits relative to other mass market retailers. They uh, charge customers the lowest markup on uh, their products. Uh, for example, no product earns more than a 14% gross margin, which is really unheard of in the retail world. And as, as a result, the company has compounded their value a lot faster than their major competitors. So, um, you know, it, it really comes back to uh, our companies operating in a way that uh, makes it such that they will continue to appeal to their, their, their big customer base? Uh, will they take care of their employees and provide a place that uh, employees want to work for them? And, and if they do those, those two things in, in the right way, I, I think the shareholder returns will take care of themselves. Um, in terms of what this all means with respect to uh, will it increase the desire for renewable energy? I, I think there's no doubt that we're on this path um, and there's going to be calls for accelerated investment to, to get away from, from fossil fuels. Uh, but I think there's some things to consider uh, as it relates to, to ESG. And this, and this uh, conflict with Russia and Ukraine is, is bringing up some, some key issues as it relates to ESG. Uh, so there's different inter interpretations of it, really. 
there's the absolutism, absolutism of saying that, you know, I will never own an energy company or a defense company or a tobacco company or a gaming company because people are taking a moral viewpoint that those companies are simply involved in businesses that they disagree with. And that's not always about sustainability because I would argue that a defense company in the long term is highly sustainable because it will be around for a long time. From an environmental standpoint, we all agree that in the end, clean energy and a cleaner environment, um, these are very valid long-term goals, but they also must be balanced with improving global standards of living, the costs associated with a rapid transition and so on. Um, so the recent events, I think also raise the idea that there are strategic actors in the world that could take advantage of the situation and put individuals and their governments in a very bad place. Germany, as an example, has had a policy not to ship certain lethal military items to countries like Ukraine. They had plans to shut down coal and nuclear power plants, making them more dependent on Russian gas. Uh, and now there's obviously a, a lot of uncertainty of supply there. So I think investors and, and countries will rethink the implications of ESG toward energy and defense in a way that is perhaps a little more balanced than it was. I think the end goal remains the same, uh, which is that cleaner energy and, and obviously less conflict. Uh, so my view is that it's okay on the one hand to invest in new technologies that lead to a cleaner future. And on the other hand, recognize that the transition is a long one and traditional companies with energy within energy will have a place uh, in, in the world for a long time yet and will be generating solid profits and cash flow due to the disinvestment that has occurred. Um, and maybe one final comment I'll, I'll mention is that we always have to take into consideration the valuation of the companies that we purchase. So ESG may be a very solid long-term theme and it is, but we have to ensure that we are paying reasonable valuations for the companies that are positively exposed and that they will continue to have all the characteristics of a good business, which to me means good margins, good cash generation, a defensible market position and proper governance. Yeah, there's a lot of times where the young people might think they align with the company and their ideals, but again, is it a good investment? So it always has to come back to when you're when you're looking at uh, companies um, from an investment perspective, that's got to be the, the final uh, questions that are answered, you know, is it a good investment? Well, Absolutely. we've touched on a, a lot of different areas here today, and I'm sure we could, we could uh, continue on. But for now, um, I'll just say thank you for shedding some light in a lot of different areas. Um, I'm sure you're going to be paying attention, close attention to all of the trends that are going on. And so I'd love to circle back with you in a quarter or so and, and get your thoughts at that time. That sounds great. Thanks, Denise. Okay, have a good day. Bye-bye. This recording is intended for financial professionals and institutional investors only. This is not intended for use with the general public. The views expressed in this podcast represent those of the speaker and are subject to change. Nothing presented should be construed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security or follow any investment technique or strategy and does not constitute advice, an advertisement, an invitation, a confirmation, an offer or a solicitation to engage in any investment activity or an offer of any banking or financial service. Throughout this presentation, various securities and companies are referenced. Examples given are for illustrative purposes only and were not chosen based on performance. This is not a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. 
All examples herein are for illustrative purposes only, and there can be no assurance that any particular investment objectives will be realized or any investment strategy seeking to achieve such objective will be successful. Past performance is not a reliable indication of future performance. Before acting on any information, you should consider the appropriateness of it with regard to your particular objectives, financial situation and needs, and seek advice. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to the accuracy or completeness of the information, opinions, and conclusions presented. In preparing this recording, Reliance has been placed without independent verification on the accuracy and the completeness of all information available from external sources. Macquarie Asset Management is the marketing name for the Asset Management Division of Macquarie Group. Investment products and advisory services are distributed and offered by and referred through affiliates, which include Delaware Distributors LP, a registered broker-dealer and member of the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and Macquarie Investment Management Business Trust, a Securities and Exchange Commission registered investment advisor. Investment advisory services are provided by a series of Macquarie Investment Management Business Trusts. Other than Macquarie Bank Limited, none of the entities noted in this podcast are authorized deposit-taking institutions for the purposes of the Banking Act of 1959 from the Commonwealth of Australia. The obligations of these entities do not represent deposits or other liabilities of Macquarie Bank Limited. Macquarie Bank Limited does not guarantee or otherwise provide assurance in respect of the obligations of these entities unless noted otherwise.